Greetings, citizen. Welcome to the show, and thank you for listening. For more of the art of wargaming in your life, definitely check us out on Instagram and Facebook. If you'd like to support the show, we have a Patreon account where you can do just that for as little as $1 a month. What we can offer will expand as the show does. If you don't have extra funds, but would still like to help us out, you can give us a like, share, or five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to get in touch? Feel free to message us or hit up our email, artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com. We look forward to continuing the conversation with you because we know the world is vast, with many different ideas on tactics and strategy that can be applied to the games we enjoy. You're listening to the Art of Wargaming on the Ear Firm Network. On War. Defensive Relations in Strategy. Welcome to the Art of Wargaming on the Ear Verm Network. I am Yaga Malark. Today's episode concerns defensive relations in strategy. Well, before we get into that, um, I recently started messing around with this uh, this AI art generator, which I mean is is nothing compared to what an actual artist can make. Uh, you know, a, a physical artist or a digital artist. There's a lot of skill that goes into really perfecting that sort of art. But for a neophyte, for an absolute Luddite like myself, something like this is a way to see pretty things just on hand and to make uh, just, I don't know, cool designs. Now, I, 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 of course, am all about making sure that it's declared to be AI art. I don't want to take away from actual artists' work, but it's still really cool. And I've started messing around with it and, and putting some of the creations on the Instagram and Facebook, which have notoriously been quiet. But this month I did uh, get up the, the battles that kind of took place, uh, some of the, the bigger historic battles uh, that I could find that took place on those dates, hoping to do so for November and December and onwards as well, so we can kind of understand maybe what was happening in history. And if we're from those areas, look around at maybe the the climate and everything that contributed to it, perhaps have some more realism to it, which is nice. So yeah, check out the Instagram and the Facebook and see some, you know, some adequate AI art and some, uh, some informational little memes that I enjoy putting out there and I, I enjoy educating people, the whole point of the show. So check it out. Today's interviewee is somebody who I've only just met. Uh, for the majority of these interviews, I've been, of course, doing people that I know because that's the easiest thing to do when you are terrible at networking. But through military miniatures, I was able to uh, make contact with somebody else. In fact, Mark L uh, Loproto, he's outstanding, and he kind of provided the networking to um, get Adam from TFG Radio on. And those, for those of you who don't play Warhammer 40K, Adam is... Uh, again, he's a, a co-host of TFG Radio, and TFG Radio is a fairly big podcast in, in the 40K community, analyzing kind of the tournament scene, general meta, and kind of going into running the leadership uh, and, and uh, kind of and nuances of being in charge of some of these events, including some of the biggest, like LVO. So I'm, I'm very much excited for you guys to be able to hear this interview. I very much enjoyed uh, recording this interview, so... Um, yeah, check it out. He has a, a fantastic new game. It's, it's, it, we, the majority of what we are going to talk about is this really cool game about Mesoamerica. And to kind of preface it, of course, most of the books we've been doing, if you'll notice, have been from a European point of view. 
The reason for that is there's not a whole lot of surviving literature from other civilizations on this subject. I mean, obviously other civilizations had tactics and had ideas, but for the most part, a lot of that knowledge was lost during colonialism. So it's really cool for somebody who has to study a majority, like European history is kind of where my focus has to be because that's where the, the breadth of the literature focuses on. But it's always nice to be able to talk with somebody who's had a different perspective, a different specialty in their study, and uh, I get to learn something. Uh, so um, I'm looking forward to y'all learning something. I got to learn something, just smiles all around. And this whole thing, you know, talking about military miniatures, Larkopoto and Adam, this idea of networking, right? This is something that is good to do in, in any organization that we're a part of, anything that we want to actually become involved in. You know, it's about meeting new people and exchanging ideas. It's very important. So it's military science in action. I guess is, is kind of what I'm kind of driving at in a long stretch sort of way. But you, if you think about, again, military action, those who have the allies generally have the most support, obviously, and they're able to apply the most pressure, maybe dissuade opponents from coming at them because you're not just fighting them, you're fighting everyone. And obviously, you know, Adam and I aren't going to be going side to side in some sort of uh, medieval fight, unless he wants to, we can figure that out. But more the idea of the more the merrier you know i'm able to exchange ideas with adam i was able to exchange ideas with jason at military miniatures and and the more the merrier the more that i'm able to learn the more that we're able to kind of uh, let the information flow and the more it benefits all of us including y'all because the more diverse perspective the better so i look forward to being able to share the results of all of my networking and uh, potentially another Another uh, friend coming on from that direction, another friend of the show, who will be helping me discuss other matters such as the Ukraine war. So more on that in the future. But I think I have droned on long enough. Uh, let's move on to the main course of this particular episode, Defensive Relations in Strategy. talking about Clausewitz, remember that strategy is more of an overarching plan than something very specific. For instance, tactics, anything to deal with tactics, which is most of the actual fighting, is a part of strategy, but strategy itself cannot actually gain a victory. Because victories are achieved tactically. A, a strategy is kind of the plan. Strategy is how we use these victories to achieve our ultimate aim. This is what Clausewitz is arguing. I'm not sure that I <laughs> understand precisely the nuance of this, but I think what he's driving at is that without these successes, tactically, there is no strategy. So it, it, it relies on that. That's how we attain our victories is through this. Again, we can have the best strategy in the world, but if it can't follow through tactically, we're not going to achieve anything. So when we're, we're dealing with strategy, it doesn't apply specifically as much to something like Belagarth or 40K because what we're dealing with there more concerns tactics. In 40K, there's a bit more of strategy because you do have these, these smaller fights that are taking place that then you can use to achieve other 
goals or objectives. And in larger battles, when we're dealing with physical wargaming, something like Belagarth, in that case, there might be something to be said for strategy, maybe. But for the most part, strategy is, okay, I've won at this fight in this city. I'm now going to move my forces up this road to lay siege to this castle. And then, tactically speaking, that siege occurs. And then we move on strategically. So, that's his point. And the idea with strategy is to take the sum of all of these actions and use it in the most productive and efficient manner possible. Whether we're on the attacking side or the defending side, we're trying to do things obviously the best that we can. And strategy is how we accomplish that. So when we're dealing with strategy, the principles of it are very similar to what we deal with tactically. There are some other considerations, and some of the principles do change in the way that we interpret them. But when we're going down the list, we have advantage of ground, the surprise, attack from several quarters, assistance in the theater of war by fortresses, the support of the people, and the utilization of great moral forces. So right off the bat, we see some familiar faces here. Number one, advantage of ground. We could talk about that all day long. In fact, we've done episodes on it. We will do other episodes on it. This idea of using the ground to our advantage, whether we're just picking a good spot, changing it in some way, putting up earthworks, laying landmines, that advantage is huge. And again, that is almost always taken by the defense is this advantage of ground. So we don't need to spend a whole lot of time on that concept. The second one, the surprise, can either be one of two things. It can either be an attack, in which case we move into, of course, the tactics, or it can be a display. A surprise can be a sudden appearance of troops where we didn't think that they were going to be. And that throws off our plan. That throws off what we're going to be able to accomplish tactically or where we're going to want to go. There are many battles throughout history where it was just a, a simple interruption that maybe caused a, a redirect or a confrontation on somebody else's terms. But the surprise, this display, is a distraction most of the time as well. It's either the show of force to discourage coming at them or being like, hey, look over here, while we're bringing up something around the side. The other thing that we can look at about surprise from the offensive point of view is the fact that the offense can surprise the defense by avoiding the battle entirely. You know, the defense is hunkered down and they're like, okay, this is where we're going to stand. And the enemy is going to come to us and we've fortified our ground. We have a really good position, really well funded, resourced. Our, our lines of battle is you know, really secure, all this other stuff. The offense can look at that and say, nah, and just move on. Move on to going and, and doing something else and trying to attack in another way. Because there are always... A surprise, right? There's a display. Another way that the offense can utilize the concept of surprise is by avoiding the battle entirely. Just because there's a defender in front of them and the battle seems to be inevitable doesn't mean that they have to commit forces. They can disengage and go somewhere else. And this may come as a surprise to the defender who may think that where they are or the, the way that they stand in is going to be the most important and something that the offense has to take in order to achieve other objectives. So in this way, the offense absolutely has the advantage of surprise in strategy. The defense, not so much. The defense has to play to what the offense is doing. In tactics, it can kind of go, go both ways. But when we're dealing with strategy, 
The surprise is entirely, usually, anyways, on the side of the offense, even in something as simple as this. When we're dealing with the idea of attack from several quarters, what we're thinking about is within several theaters of the overall war. In, in tactics, of course, we're, we're speaking about how to maneuver against our enemy who is directly in front of us in ways that, that we can get like an encirclement or penetrate defenses where they are weak. Whatever we can take from this, that, that attack from several quarters is specific like to that one enemy. But in a theater of war, there is no way to bring an enemy under two fires. They're, they're either on fire or being fired upon, or they aren't. Tactically speaking, they may be surrounded or there may be armies coming around from uh, around them, but it's not the same when we're dealing with strategy. Because oftentimes this multiple fires bringing in uh, attacking, there are no rear and there is no flanks. This idea of a, um, a line of retreat isn't as important as it is in, in tactics. I mean, it still is important. If you cut somebody off from a supply depot or a capital, that can lead to either a political or material advantage. But it's not as important. It's not going to break the game if you interrupt it because there are ways in strategy for us to rectify that situation. It is not a almost immediate disqualifier for victory. So the advantage here, of course, is made when we attack on several fronts or when we cause our opponent to be attacked on several fronts. Think of Nazi Germany in the Second World War when they were opening up that second theater toward Russia while still engaged with people in the West. This was a mistake, obviously, because it put uh, man and material in two different directions where they could have focused in one or the other. This had to happen during the Napoleonic Wars and the French Revolutionary Wars too because uh, the France was on constant siege from all sides. It wasn't like they had a whole lot of friends. They're on the co continent. They were <laughs> surrounded by enemies. So by opening up these, these other fronts, by opening up other places where they're being attacked, this massively affects strategy. And again, this is something that is in the offense's wheelhouse. They have the advantage on this one. They're the ones in motion, trying to achieve something over there. Now, as much as it spreads out our opponent's forces, it also spreads out our own. Because instead of attacking en masse in one particular spot, we are also spreading out our attack, which is to say we are blunting our edge somewhat. Now, if this is a display or if this is an attack elsewhere to open something up, then that's outstanding. But it doesn't change the fact that the display aspect still costs us men or, or you know soldiers in that theater of war. It's not for free. Those are soldiers that could be a part of the main advance or could be attacking period if we're dealing with displays. So this is to be considered, you know, because numbers, as Clausewitz says, are important. It's one of the most important things in war. So taking away from our attack to do this, it better be a darn good plan. We better have a darn good strategy for reducing our numbers tactically in order to do something else. Because the rules are slightly different in strategy than in tactics, when we're, again, when we're dealing with this idea of attacks on the rear and the flanks, we also want basically the opposite of what we want in tactics. Because in tactics, the wider we can spread our wings and the more envelopment we can get on our opponent's flanks while still maintaining the integrity of our center, that's better because that puts us in a position of advantage. In terms of defense in a strategic situation, we have the advantage of interior lines 
and interior lines much like were used by Frederick the Great during his wars with uh, in Prussia, you're able to block from several different directions and your opponent has to over advance. That's just kind of the advantage that was is always incurred in this situation is that your opponent has to come forward, has to leave their position of power, their position of you know strategic defense over there, where their material is at, where their depots, where their, their towns are, and move into somebody else's territory. And so already the advantage is, is inferred or, or taken by the defense because they are closer to their supplies. They are closer to everything that they're going to need. And so if we're using this to our advantage, if we're making sure to play the interior lines, make our opponents come to us, beat them, hopefully, I mean, that's, that's the point of the whole strategy, right? Is to beat them tactically and then move on to something else. Well, in this particular case, that's good. Because if we can concentrate, we're able to redeploy faster. If we have an overall force, and a quarter of our opponent's force comes towards us, we're able to assemble far more in that place while risking far less elsewhere because our opponent has to spread out in order to attack us. And so if we're punching inwards, kind of like if, if you're doing martial arts, for instance, if we're fighting with our fists and our kicks, most of the time we're going for the inside because from there we can block punches, from there we can deliver punches to our opponent's soft regions, their face, their, their gut, their torso and whatnot. And the same is true in, in strategy, where we want those interior lines because they make our job so much easier in terms of being able to defend from several different directions. And anytime we're dealing with this, we need to remember that any sort of attack is not made without a plan and usually not made with, without the belief of victory, which is from assumed superiority. The Russians would not have invaded the Ukraine if they didn't think they were going to win. That would have been stupid. You know, America did not invade Afghanistan, not thinking that they were going to win. Vietnam, for that matter, or any of the other wars that have been entered throughout the years and have gone sourly for the person who initiated them. They obviously had a plan. Horace had a plan when he was sieging Terra. Otherwise, he would not have done it. Offensive actions are able to capitalize on, on this because they do automatically have the initiative. They're the ones that are moving in. We already kind of talked about this. So... Sometimes that is the defensive, it's on the defense where we're dealing with tactics, but always in strategy are we going to have the initiative going toward whoever is uh, attacking. Even if the person who has been running an overall defensive campaign is the one attacking, they have then just switched on to the offense, right? They're moving into that other position. So that is the big difference here as well. And as we were saying, these roles can reverse. If, if the defender sees a weakness in the opposing, opposing line or in the opposing force, they can absolutely turn it about and become the attacker in that particular theater or in that particular, you know, area of the war. So like we said, this particular principle is different than it is in tactics, but it's still, we're still playing by kind of the same rules, right? Trying to bring the most numbers to bear in the spot that we can to make the most effect uh, in our, tactically against our enemy. The next principle that we want to discuss, number four, which is assistance in the theater of war by fortresses. Now, oftentimes this doesn't necessarily happen in the wargaming that we are doing, unless we're doing something that is a more RP based, where it's like, okay, well, I'm going to occupy the fort and then you guys are going to come at me. We don't have this, this large interconnected nationwide series of forts, series of caches 
that we are able to draw upon. It's just not the same. We, we are very much unable <laughs> to do that on the scale in which we do our wargaming. But for the sake of when we're talking about history, this is, again, naturally on the side of the defense because the, the offense has to take those things. They have to take the forts. They have to take the supply caches and the munitions depots. They're having to move away from their own lines of logistics, stretching those lines out, which makes things far more complicated than they would be when running a campaign in your own territory. And so the, the logistics become a concern. They become weaker as well, weaker to attacks from the sides or attacks uh, from the rear that cause those logistics to break up. So the offense definitely puts themselves on weaker footing when they are coming into opposing territory. The next concept was support of the people. And this is not necessarily guaranteed. Now it's, it's going to usually happen on the defensive side, but not always. Sometimes the defensive side either just cannot summon the morale because of apathy or because of outright rebellion. When we're dealing with a war in like an occupied area and people are coming into that place who are from that area attacking uh, fortifications perhaps from the occupiers you, the, the, the local population might not support the occupiers they might be in support of the folks who are coming back potentially in their eyes to liberate them so while it is important to garner this it is not always guaranteed for the defense even in their own even in their own territory Again, sometimes the defense may be supportive of the invasion. Perhaps the invaders are preferable to whatever regime they are currently living under. But usually if somebody is going to have this advantage, it is going to be the defense. But they need to find a way to garner it and to keep it. Because it is really easy for war support to go south real fast. When America, for instance, first entered the war in Vietnam, there was a, a lot of public support for it. But very quickly after that, the public support began to dwindle and dwindle and dwindle to the point in which the public was actively hostile towards the soldiers that were coming back. Soldiers, in many cases, who had been drafted and maybe did not want to be there fighting that particular war against those particular people. So even in that case, when we're dealing with like the, the support of the people back home, that can turn very quickly too. So support is not guaranteed for the defense and it is not guaranteed for the offense. So it needs to be seen to with, with great concentration. Lastly, when we're dealing with these fourth and fifth principles, namely assistance and support, Clausewitz adds kind of the point that I was making earlier, which is it matters where we are making our defense. It matters whether or not we are the original defense or, or the defense on our own soil. It matters whether or not we're the invaders and trying to do defense on their soil. And obviously, our position is going to be weaker if we are already in enemy or occupied territory. Again, the challenges that the United States military faced in Vietnam and in Afghanistan point to this entirely. A lot of times the local population isn't going to be cooperative because either they don't support the uh, occupiers or because they're afraid of insurgents from the defensive side. Either way, you're dealing with a population that is not going to be nearly as forthcoming with aid or with information as a native population who may have the loyalty of, of that particular effort. Though again, as we've seen before in history, is not guaranteed. Some wars have been massively unpopular with the people who were fighting in them or the people who are funding them back home. And this is something that all generals, all 
politicians have to acknowledge and kind of work around. Because at the end of the day, the support for the war comes from, in democracies, the will of the people and the consent of the people. But even in other efforts, it, is, it takes a massive toll. Wars cost money. A lot of money. Either from our own pockets or from other pockets. But weapons and training, these are expensive things. So every commander of every stripe and every president and every dictator and every king and every queen has always wanted to win a war quickly to minimize not only on the financial instability and strain that it can bring to a treasury, but also the fact that these two principles are in play. And if they change, if they turn on the person who is in trying to prosecute this conflict, they can't do much. <laughs> <laughs> At that point, it really much it really suspends the war effort and, and hampers its ability to move forward. So these two are important very much for strategy. And these are also principles, before we move on, these are also principles that not only favor one side, but they actively disfavor the other. So, I mean, for instance, sometimes we have something in terms of a, a battlefield setup where the defense has good position and the offense has to come in and fight them. Well, the defense has a good position, but that good position does not take away from the capabilities of the offense. It may block some of their stuff, but they're still able to do what they need to do. In this particular case, when we're dealing with these two principles, it actively takes away from our opponent's ability to prosecute the battle. Because the more of this, the more of these two principles, the more the assistance and support, you know, the assistance of the fortresses and the supplies of the area and the support of the people in the area, the more that these are in our favor, the more that it actively detracts from our opponent. Because not only will people, for instance, not cooperate with the occupying power, they might actively cooperate with the defensive power in terms of munition acquisition or in terms of information exchange, this can absolutely go in the favor of one than the other and becomes an active detriment to the one who is not in charge or not receiving these two ideas. So again, this one is not as important for the wargaming aspect. We're not going to have to deal with these principles directly. Again, I can make some sort of stretch to kind of make them apply, but, uh, but at the end of the day, this is overarching strategy. This is state policy that we're dealing with here and, and state politics that feed into it. So again, these two are really important, strategically speaking, and, and I thought it was worth going over, even though it has nothing to do with we, what we do. I thought it might be interesting for sure. The number six, we were dealing with the great moral forces. And if you remember, we have talked about this quite a bit because of its importance, not only in war, but also in war gaming. The great moral forces determine a whole lot of what is going to happen on the field or what is going to happen on the board. Because the great moral forces saturate every level of war and of war gaming. The great moral forces impact the kind of troops that we can bring to the battle, the spirit decor that those troops are going to have, which influences how quickly they will take positions and how staunchly they will fight in the face of danger, in the face of the enemy. The great moral forces come into play when we're dealing with uh, supply from back home, when we're dealing with, again, the support and the assistance of the people back home and in the area. The great moral forces dictate a lot of how those are going to support us and how effective that is going to be. These things are so important 
so important to everything we're doing. And that's why it's important to kind of maintain, maintain a positive attitude and engage positively with our community because that can only benefit us in the games that we play because we're bolstering our moral forces. We're not going out on tilt. We're able to focus on what we're able to bring to the table and we're able to do it well, which is the whole point. Because especially if we're the defender, we need to make sure that we have our poop in a group, that if we're the defender, we need to be even more disciplined and even more put together, not just in our forces, but in of ourselves, because the great moral forces favor the attack. It favors the one who are marching off. Now, in, in terms of wars that we're having in these days, it depends. It depends. From what I've seen in the war in the Ukraine, the Russians aren't exactly super behind what is going on there. Meanwhile, the vast majority of the Ukrainians are very much in support of the defensive efforts that are going on there. So the great moral forces can occupy that way as well. But in terms of actual active strategy, it favors the attack because the attack has the plan. The attack knows where they're going to go because they're the ones who have put that plan into action. And so from the get-go, the attack will throw the defender into some form of confusion and disorder. Even if it's reacted well to on the strategic level, there will be things coming into play that the defense does not anticipate. Ideally, sometimes if you're going against somebody who's very predictable or very new to something, then yes, it might be painfully obvious what is going to happen and we won't deal with the same level of confusion or disorder. Sometimes. Any fighter who's listening right now knows that noob foo is absolutely a thing. Maybe less so in things like war gaming, like actually like tabletop war gaming, where a whole lot of concentration and, and knowledge of your rules and how they interplay is necessary. But in terms of chess and in terms of actual fighting, noob foo is a thing because people don't know the rules, which is to say they don't know how everybody else throws the shot. I have thrown the shots, the same 12 shots that I throw for... 20 years, because those are the forms that I've been practicing. Those are the ways that I have taught my body how to move. And so when I throw shots, they're coming from that practice. They're coming from those places. And so when I see them coming at me, I also know what to do because I have also shadow boxed against these ideas as well. So in either of these ways, when I'm fighting somebody who has been trained conventionally and who now fights conventionally in any sort of fashion, I have an advantage as do they. But if somebody comes on the field and they don't know what they're doing and they're bringing some new flavor to us, that is absolutely a level of confusion that will upset our great moral forces. Nothing uh, staggers a noob more or staggers a veteran more than when a noob does very well against them. Talk about confusion and disorder. Like that new fella that I was uh, mentioning an episode or two ago here in Stygia who has the blocks of a angel. Just insane. Just insane his level of blocking ability. And that threw me into confusion and disorder because I was not accustomed to being blocked that efficiently by somebody who was new. So the great moral forces were then on his side. And he won that match, by the way. He won it because I was thrown into confusion. And I was the attacker. So again, it, it really matters. <laughs> it really matters. Not just on the field, but also in a greater wargaming sense. And so, again, we're going to keep stressing these, this, this particular thing because it is good. It's good to keep in a good mood and good to keep in good health if we're going to be the most efficient 
that we can be on the on the field. So these concepts, looking over the way that the defense has its relation to strategy against the offense, I think that I agree with Clausewitz, and I, I think you would too, that the defense is stronger of the two if we're in the war. The defense is stronger. There are advantages that the attack absolutely has. There are advantages that our invading or attacking force definitely retains. But overall, when we're dealing with what contributes actually to the war effort and what contributes actively to victory, the defense is stronger, without a doubt, in my opinion. Well, now we're going to move on, and we are going to talk with Adam of TFG Radio about these ideas and about his new miniature game he's coming out with about war in Mesoamerica. Here today to talk with us about uh, war gaming, defense in strategy, and an outstanding new game in Mesoamerican warfare is Adam of TFG Radio. Adam, thanks so much for coming on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. Well, for those who may not know you, uh, would you mind giving folks a little bit uh, of a uh, snapshot of your pedigree experience of wargaming? Sure. Um, I started when I was, well, my interest in miniature wargaming started when I was about 10, 11 years old. My One of my uncles had, uh, like I think, I'm pretty sure there were 54 or the 12 inch, no, there were 12 inch tall Napoleonic figures that he just had on his mantelpiece. Um, and they just fascinated me. In addition, he used to make uh, models, model houses inside bottles. Ooh. So not model ships, but model houses. Uh, different types of houses, even made outhouses with little, which, little toilet paper rolls, which <laughs> amazed me. Um, and that got me interested in that, that world, so to speak. The, the other thing that, that kind of sparked the interest was uh, for those that are old enough to remember when comic books had the advertisements for battles between like Romans and barbarians, American civil war. Um, you send like, I think it was like $3 or something and you get a, you get basically two armies. Uh, I believe they were like 172 scale more or less. And I got uh, American revolution. So I had red, a red army and a blue army. Nice. And I made, and I made my brother's, uh, my two younger brothers play with me, even though they had we all had no idea how to play a proper war game. So we just, um, and from there I kind of I, I kind of floated into like, um, it's weird because it's before the internet. So <laughs> it's uh, I floated into uh, finding a, a game store, and then uh, I remember buying a, uh, the old Courier magazine. Because it had a picture of a siege on the cover, and it, that, and for some reason, I love sieges, um, medieval sieges. And uh, in there were, were companies that made figures, and they had the catalog. So I had to send a uh, send a wasn't a self addressed stamped envelope, but I just write write for a catalog uh, in the old days, and and get stuff that way. And I remember my first lead uh, miniatures, which was actual lead. Oh my. Uh, yeah, don't eat the don't eat the lead, don't eat the metal lead, um, <laughs> and it was a twenty millimeter Vietnam, uh, both Viet Cong and uh, U.S. Uh, I believe it was U.S. Army, and the only reason I got those was because my dad's a Vietnam vet, and so obviously you know from hearing his stories and just being interested in general, uh, I bought those figures, 
And from there, uh, over the as the years progressed, um, I saw a box of I believe I want to say it was fourth edition fantasy box from Games Workshop, but it was a it was like a a, a sample pack. So it was a box with uh, sixty models in it, but it was and they're all plastic. But they're not the plastic they make now. It's it was that really hard white plastic that. If you, it was like, and when I mean hard, I mean it was a solid chunk. There was no way, there was no uh, customizing the pla- that plastic. It was just hard to cut. Oh. But but it was sixty models. But it was ten models of like six different races. So it was like ten Skaven. You got ten Skaven. I believe it was ten orcs, ten goblins, ten elves, ten or ten dwarves, and I believe it was ten humans. And again, there were stats there, and these were back when they had willpower and cool. And leadership, which tells you what uh, roughly what edition it was. I believe it was like third or fourth edition. Um, I didn't, but I didn't know what it was. And we had a, uh, I remember this distinctly. We had a plast, uh, Lego castle set at the house that we had built. So we played with those GW models with the Lego castle set. And again, we just, I just, well, this, this, I don't know what, what CL means. Now I know it meant cool. We just made up what these numbers represented and just played that way with my brother. Again, enlisting my brothers to make them play with me because I needed someone to play with. <laughs> sure, but he, but uh, but uh, and I still have a, a, I still have a fair amount of those models, um, still unpainted. So, <laughs> <laughs> like most, my, like most born gamers. Yeah, I've got a um, massive grayscale army too. Yeah. Uh, so uh, and then uh, when I went to a store, I saw the box art for. Uh, the original Space Marine first edition epic. Uh, so I bought I bought that, and that's what really got me into Games Workshop games because the the sampler box didn't I didn't know what Games Workshop was. I just saw these models with orcs and goblins, and um, I, re- I had read Tolkien by that point, so of course I'm going to buy it. Um, and and so I I bought this box. I read about the Horus Heresy, and I was hooked from then on. The Horus Heresy is what hooked me, which is why the current series that they're doing is just blowing my mind um all 100 books or whatever whatever they're at right now <laughs> uh, but um and then from there it went to you know rogue trader and and uh and i also got adeptus titanicus because that's they're kind of paired together more or less so i have you know i had the styrofoam buildings and the night knights i mean the titans all that good stuff and then i started reading white dwarf i that so i that's where i started i continue to be part of that that games workshop world so to speak because it is a bit set apart from other from the other aspects of of wargaming historical or otherwise um so and and i've been playing games workshop essentially ever since uh now i play i help run tournaments uh for their competitive side and play in tournaments as well for uh, frontline gaming which is one of the ones that puts out uh, the largest 40k tournament in the world at the very least in vegas every year every january so it's kind of the one that everybody aims for i know that uh i've, I've definitely looked at it and been you know i i could go to lvo i would get my <laughs> my you know my butt handed to me but i i could go to lvo well they do they do have a, a friendly event so Ooh. and the only the only difference between the two is uh it's uh, I believe it's still it's four only four games, but you only it's four hours each game. So, okay, okay. Uh, so if, if you're if you're not into the competitive side, you can do that. There's a narrative event also. There's kill team. Uh, there's blood bowl. 
Adeptus Titanicus this year, I believe, as well as some of the historical games like uh, uh, Flame, Flames of War, Team Yankee, uh, Bolt Action, more more of the big name ones. It's it's not so much. It's not really like more. Like, it's not really like a convention, but they do have some historical uh, games there, as well as other other manufacturers that have games like War Machine, uh, Marvel Crisis Protocol, um, Con- um, Conquest by Parabellum. Uh, game, games of that nature, so it's it's. I call it a convention, but they they wouldn't. <laughs> well, no, it sounds like there's something for everybody. It's it's touted yeah. as one of the biggest, or like you said, the biggest war hammer uh, can, uh, tournament in the world. But there's so much else going on uh, that that just about anybody who's a war gamer at all could find something they like there. Yeah, th- like I said, there's a, there's a lot of other games, and they're always adding games. It's it's essentially whoever wants to run a game. Uh, or a tournament or whatever, they'll they'll make room for it usually, as long as they can get people to sign up. So, like I said, the, there's all, all the different GW games in addition to all the non-GW games. There, there's hobby classes um, for basically the hobby paint classes, really. And it's not just one person; it's it's a number of different people you may know from Twitch or or from from GW um, te- teaching how to paint uh, your t- little tiny men. <laughs> Well, right on. Yeah, that sounds that sounds outstanding. I like I said, I've I've been meaning to go at some point, but I it's definitely higher on my list even even before, uh, even more so than before. <laughs> um, but you were mentioning also playing a Warhammer 40k. Do you have a favorite army that you like to use? Um, the first army I played or built was uh, Chaos, and it was Black Legion. the The idea of more or less like fallen angels. Uh, especially someone falling from so high, you know, the the, high, uh, the higher you go, the farther down the fall type of thing, sure. just appeal, appealed to me. And and their their uh, I don't want to say redemption, be, just because of the nature of the of the of the fluff or the right. background, uh, because they are chaos. Um, but just the nature of their rebirth as the Black Legion, you know, casting off the their shame of of. Being on the losing side of the of the civil war and and uh, reimagining themselves as this new this new legion. Um, if you, if anyone is interested, if you ever have a chance, you should read the uh, the two books by Aaron Dempsey Dempsey Bowden, which is uh, Talon of Horus and Black Legion. They're really good and really help uh, explore that the whole formation of the Black Legion and, and what they stand for. Uh, but even before the books, I was I was hooked on that. So I play I play Black Legion mostly. Um, I do have a Thousand Sons army, and I do have a Death Guard army, uh, and I do have a Zinch Demons army. So I play a lot of Chaos. <laughs> I was going to say, you sound like a Chaos, man. You're probably enjoying looking at the decor behind me, all these Chaos Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I do have a... Uh, um, someone uh, made a banner. I do have a uh, Horus Her- Heresy banner, uh, uh, which I keep I keep at the local store, a local game shop, so... Uh, but yeah, I, I, I every, it's funny because every time there's a new army, I'm like, oh, I should, I should try that army, and then I just look at my chaos. No, nah, just play chaos. <laughs> right. Well, it's it's a lot of work, of course, to build and paint and learn. Um, I know that the Votan uh, just came out, and I I am so in love with dwarves. Like Tolkien's dwarves were some of my favorite <laughs> part of that. But I'm already so committed. I've already got like three armies that I'm really deep into. So I I cannot justify taking on another army even one as cool as space dwarves yeah it's it's the same way when i first saw the rules and and uh 
and watched it and watched you know some of the some of the previews and stuff. I'm like, oh, they look pretty cool, you know. And and then I'm then again I'm like, well, I could just play my chaos because I don't have to I don't have to paint anything. <laughs> I have like oh, practically all the models, so there's not much I need to I need to buy. I mean, I buy stuff because just to update the models. Although I still have a couple of my old original RBT01 Space Marines uh, sprinkled in my my Chaos Army. Um, they're much shorter than the current the current models, but but it's for me it's a bit uh, a tie to the, my original army way back when. Well, and Abaddon's just so good; it'd be hard to move into any other army after having him on the field and getting to use him. Yeah, with, with the current look, the current rules for him, and he's in my army. Um, he when he gets a chance, he would he would just march through an army like it's like it's nothing with the current with his current rules. Well, so. he can he can take on some of the other like biggest things in the in the whole of the game, like demon lord or demon princes and Gilliman and and all sorts of stuff. He can hold his own against them, if not do way better. Yeah, th- there was a a YouTube channel that that did just that. They pit him against every other HQ unit, and he got through. He killed like almost all of them. The only one he died to was Mortarion. And that was only because he wasn't at full wounds. Because apparently, what they did was every after every fight, he regenerated. I think it was like D three wounds or something like that. Mm. So he wasn't at full strength, but I believe Mortarian was. But even then, he still went through a majority of the of the characters in in the game right now. So that's crazy. Oh yeah, so he's living. He's living up to the name. Well, I'm joining you, not in the Black Legion. I'm I'm playing Word Bearers. That's the army okay. that I'm getting into right now. But uh, no, we'll 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 fight over there as your, as your rivals. <laughs> I was about to say we could fight side by side, but chaos doesn't really work like that. <laughs> no, no, it's it's one of the it's one of the reasons why. And if you read the background, they'll be like close to winning, and then somebody will decide at that moment to basically do something they shouldn't. You know, or, or attack their own side, or try to take right. something that belongs to somebody else, and it causes a lot of confusion and and infighting at the moment of victory. Well, so. hey, you were you were just talking about the Horus Heresy, and you know, Lorgar tried to do the whole. I don't want to spoiler alert for anybody who's still reading, <laughs> but of course, Lorgar tries to do the the whole usurp thing. He gets cast yes. down. Horus says, "Get get out of here," and he takes the majority of his legion with him. The Word Bearers are one of the largest legions in the game. Them and the and the Ultramarines are up there. At, some of the largest yeah. legions in the game, especially during the heresy. And so I, you can't help but wonder how much those bodies would have made a difference at the Siege of Terra. Right, and, there, and there's more of that. If you haven't read the Siege especially, there's more of that as the, as the Siege continues with, with guys doing whatever they want or their own thing instead of happy, you know, trying to get the, the job done. Sure. So. Emperor's children, eh? <laughs> That's one of them. There's, there's a couple. There's at least one more. I don't want to spoil, but right, 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 right. If you, if you haven't read it yet, yeah. Now, Emperor's what, children's kind of uh, anybody who's read has to assume that uh, the the children of Fulgrim would be off, kind of enjoying themselves. <laughs> yes, and that's been in, that's been in, in the in the background for for almost the beginning since they started flesh, fleshing out the. Uh, the uh, the horse heresy with the, with since first edition epic space marines so oh, but there's there's other there's other at least one other legion that that kind of takes their ball and goes home so to speak so we'll keep that one secret yeah <laughs> 
Well, apart from playing Warhammer 40K, which I love as well and has given us both hours of enjoyment, I'm sure, you had said that you were coming out with a new Mesoamerican uh, wargaming uh, kind of experience too, right? That, that is correct. You want to talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, so uh, the game is called Obsidian Empires, and it's basically uh, warfare in Mesoamerica, uh, pre-Columbian and uh, Spanish exploration. Uh, that's more or less the time period of when it is. When it is. You can easily play earlier periods because the weaponry didn't change too much at that time. Um, I'm not sure how far how far back you can go, but uh, um, it, it lends itself to... Uh, because the weapons didn't change too much at that, in that period, it, it lends itself to going further back in time. Sure. But, um, so what kind of gameplay uh, does, it, does it kind of go into? So it's, it, it range, uh, a few things. It is, uh, first off, it's, you only need two dice. You only need a D12 and a D6. Um, and that's all you need, even though you do use D12, D6, and D3s on occasion. But you really only need, each player only needs... Uh, just the D12 and the D6. It is alternating activation, uh, so it's it's not I go you go like most Games Workshop games. Um, so what it does, it allow it keeps you active during the game. You're, I mean, you're probably familiar as if you play a Games Workshop game and some other games, uh, historical games. You while your other player is doing their movement, you can literally just walk away and do something, and then come back, and then it's your turn to do something. You know, so right. it, it it's not very interactive at at certain points, um, especially early on when people when things are just moving and not really uh, anything else happening. So with alternate alternating activation, every, you're always doing something, and then that's in each step. So each movement, shooting, melee, even when when units have to take morale, you're alternating which units take the morale check. Uh, the other the other thing about it is that. Um, we don't. Uh, there's no armor save if you if you play. And and a lot of my references are to Games Workshop because that's what a lot of people play. Or a similar would be like um, uh, some Warlord games, not all of them, but um, where they have like an armor save. Where so if you're wearing a certain type of armor, there's a certain value you have to hit in order to ignore that wound or that damage. In this game, that step is completely skipped. So what ends up happening instead is after a successful hit your opponent rolls to see how much damage he does and then whatever armor you are wearing or whatever in addition to whatever special rules you may have or army rules it uh, mitigates the damage that you receive so So kind of a dr sort of thing right yeah yeah so like for example if i was shooting at you and i hit you and and i do let's say eight damage but because I'm wearing, let's say I'm if I'm Spanish and I'm heavily armored, because I'm wearing you know a steel breastplate, I have a shield, I have a helmet, that mitigates the eight damage to maybe like three or four. So the unit only takes you know damage after that that reduction has been made, and even then damage is based on the unit, not not individual models. You do pull individual models out of the unit, but you 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 distribute damage from a damage pool. So a unit okay. takes 12 damage total, and then you distribute who takes the damage. Now, you still have to pull whole models, but it, it and each unit might have a different um, uh, wound value for that unit. So more common units have less wounds, more elite units have uh, more wounds per model. Makes sense. Um, in addition, it is uh, 
similar to BattleTech, uh, all the da all the damage is done is uh, done at the end of the turn or at the end of the of the step. So everyone does all their shooting, regardless of how much damage the unit takes. They shoot at whatever however many models they have. So if they have a full ten men, and let's say they lose nine of them, which would normally reduce their effectiveness. Um, they still shoot as if they were at a full ten man unit once everyone's once everyone's done shooting, you then uh resolve the damage and then that ten man reduces down to one guy huh. so so it keeps you in the game so if you if you have a unit because if you play again if you play games workshop or some of the other games because of the i go you go system when a unit is destroyed and it's not your turn, you don't get to do anything with that unit right. If it's out so, on first turn, it was just there as a paperweight. Yeah, it's just as a placeholder or, or a way for me to get to get closer to you, basically. And they don't do anything else, you know, that that game, you know. And it, it, it it's something when something like that happens, it can be very uh, disheartening for the player, especially if it's a unit that they're really proud of, or they're, or maybe they spent time painting it, or they just think it's a cool unit and they want to just play it on the table and they don't get to do anything because they just got killed right before the game even starts, essentially for them so with this system they at least get to play with they get to play with their toys even even though they may not be there you know after you're done playing with the toy but uh so there's that there's there's also kind of a uh, uh common unit uh mechanic in that because there are a lot of similarities especially in the mesoamerican armies uh they use a lot of the same units so they a lot of the army building is much the same for most of the units for most of the armies it's really just the special roles and whatever army choice limitations you have that really define the armies um the last thing about the game um, and and we can talk a little later about the reasons why i, I made the game um but what i want to uh, talk about is i incorporated a a way to to ex to simulate how Mesoamerican armies fought at that time. Uh, one one of the big issues, well, I guess I'll talk about it now. One of the big issues I had with with uh, gaming that era and that and that part of the world is that one, it's shoehorned into. Well, whenever you see a game and it has Aztecs, they place them in the Renaissance era because that's sure. when that's when it happened. You know, fifteen twenty to fifteen. Fifteen uh, twenties and thirties, and because of that, and they and they more 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 importantly, they shoehorn them into fighting in a European style, you know, block troops, you know, squealing and square movement, uh, things of that nature, which they very um, much did not historically. No, which they did. They they fought more like almost like Dark Ages combat, where it's you know it's it's not necessarily a shield wall, but it's just a group of guys running at each other. And yeah, they, they stay in their unit, but once once the battle lines hit, they almost broke out into individual combats mm -hmm. uh, for a couple of reasons. One was basically almost like show off to the gods, but also to capture uh, their opponents because they would they one way to improve your, your station in life whether you were a commoner or a noble, was to capture opponents, almost like counting coup in in native uh, North American uh, Native American tribes. So, 
we incorporated or I incorporated a, a mechanic where all Mesoamerican armies can instead of doing what we call damage a damage pool, which is where you pull out the models after all the fighting's done. Mm-hmm. You you can instead choose to try capture damage, and what that does is it allows you to capture the mo- model instead of kill the model, and with that you gain victory points. No matter what the scenario is. So regardless of the scenario, you can earn extra victory points by capturing models. That's really cool. And so what ends up happening, uh, especially in our test games, was that if your army had a lot of art, had a lot of missile troops, you would soften up some of the more elite troops because once they take damage, if they had any damage left over, it stays with the unit. And in order to capture a unit, you have to you have to do as much capture damage as that unit has model has wounds left per model so if one model if a unit has five wounds per model and there's three wounds they're carrying three wounds so they have one model technically only has two wounds left all you need to do is to capture damage and you capture that elite unit or that elite model nice i I can't think of any other game that has that kind of mechanic in it that's really quite unique yeah, and and that's the reason I did the game because, and that's one of the unique things um, with the fighting. With the fighting, the only comparable thing I can think of would be uh, medieval combat, where you want you would want to capture a noble as opposed to killing the noble for, but for the ransom, not necessarily to make you know the sunrise the next morning. Right. Um, so, so it's similar in nature to that, in, in that you don't always want to kill your opponent, but you want to capture them to bring them back. So that you can sacrifice them either in ritual combat or in as a sacrifice on the altar in order to to basically in their in their worldview to sustain the world or make sure the sun rises the next day. Um, sure, because well, yeah, the the Aztecs had a very similar idea about the universe as the ancient Indians did, like the India. Indians, and because the early concept of karma wasn't this interplay between, oh, good things bring you good things, bad things give you bad things. No, it was a concept of sacrifices make the sun rise. And if you're right. not making them, that sun doesn't come up. Yeah, and, and even then, a lot of times, you know, the, the people being sacrificed, you know, even then thought it was a great honor. So it wasn't like you see in a lot of a lot of B-movies where you see them people dragging people to be sacrificed and they're kicking and screaming. A lot of times it would even though they may not want to, but they were captured fair and square and willing sacrifices, and they were given a high place of honor in many times, depending on the festival and, and things of that nature. But yeah, so I, and I, and I never saw anything like that on the tabletop. Like I said, it was always like square blocks. They're, they're fighting like Europeans, which is not what happened. Right. Um, now on the flip side, that is probably one, one of the reasons why they didn't do so well against the Spanish because the Spanish weren't there to capture people. So, right. <laughs> well, they were there to capture something, but it wasn't people. They weren't really playing the same game or by the same rules, but, um, but I felt, and there's, there's other aspects of the game that I, I put in, uh, that I felt, captured the flavor of the the Mesoamerican armies as a whole and sometimes as uh, the individual armies or city-states um, uh, for that particular one. You know, Aztecs had more... For example, Aztecs had more... a larger population to pull from for their for their armies, so they get a free, a free novice unit, you know. But, I mean, novices are okay, but it's still more bodies they can have. You know, um, 
the Purpecha, who is the empire to the west of the Aztecs, and one of the few empires that actually resisted the Aztecs for a number of years, um, they were, from the the research I did, they were they were known to have sturdier bows and be an expert marksman to the point where their elite units were said to to shoot a hail of arrows on their own. So they have a special rule with doing extra damage with their archers. But be, also because, and this includes the army construction, because they relied on archers more than Aztecs. They have to have so many archers, or at least more archers than melee units. While hmm. Aztecs, on the flip side, have more melee units than archers, because Aztecs relied more on the close combat aspect of their armies as opposed to the missile troops. And it's the same with with the other armies uh, around. And I focus this more more on the central valley, central Mexico, which is why you only see. Because what it, what it, what I noticed also is that most most games only focus on the big what I call the big three, which is Aztec, Mayans, and Incas. Mm-hmm. They didn't talk about anybody else, especially some of the other empires that were maybe not as big, but just as important, or you know, in in the region. Um, so mines aren't in this one or Incas, but I, I hope to add them uh, soon. So again, this is absolutely fascinating to me because uh, most war games are set, if not in Europe and and that style of war, at least within its spirit. So like a lot of forty k, I would mm. say, is a very much a European style of war. Um, but what kind of factions do you have? Obviously, we have the the Spanish and we have the Aztec. But what kind of other factions are we looking at? So the first faction, like I mentioned earlier, was uh, Purapecha, but most people know them as, uh, well, not most. A lot of older players know them as Tarasco or Tarascan, but uh, the more the current term is Purapecha because that's what they call themselves, or that's what the commoners call themselves because most of the nobles were killed, so they don't know the actual name of the region. And these and this is west of the empire, west of Mexico, I mean, west of the Aztecs and modern-day Michoacan. Okay. So and which and they still speak the same language. Uh, that's where my family is from. Uh, there and Durango, which is more north of in Chichimec, uh, that's more north of uh, Mexico City. But but uh, most of my my father's side is is from Michoacan. My mother's side is from uh, uh, Durango, like I said. But but that's so so they still speak the language. Um, known for their metalcraft, uh, one of the few areas. They, the language is much different than the native Aztec language. Uh, so they have, they, there's some uh, question about where they're from. Uh, but again, they were the second largest empire in the region at that time, the time of the conquest. Mm-hmm. And they had, and about a year or two before uh, Cortez had shown up, they had defeated uh, the Aztecs in a, in a large battle at that time. And, and one of the reasons why the Aztecs fell to the, to the uh, Spanish was obviously the, the help that the uh, Spanish got, but also when they went to the Purapecha for help, there was so much distrust that they they didn't they didn't want to help because they didn't trust the Aztecs with with <laughs> with um, that with what they were telling them what was happening. Um, but they did ca- sing a different tune when uh, they saw what happened to the Aztecs. <laughs> sure. And um, I mean, I, I, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that there was more than enough militant power within Mesoamerica to successfully resist the Spanish if it had been united. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, it, and if everyone didn't probably, I'm not going to say everyone, but if a majority of the area did not have harbor some uh, 
I mean, hatred might be a, a strong word, but but some but some uh, resentment. Resentment, yeah, that's what I'm looking for. Resentment against against the Aztec and Triple Alliance. Um, the other, so that's and that's the uh, that's the faction on the west. Uh, the other one, the other faction is Tlaxcala, which is the if you look on if you ever look on any map of of uh, the Aztec Empire, there's this one little uh, like hole in the middle of the empire, and that's the Tlaxcala. And they were in the process of being conquered when the Spanish arrived. And they were the ones that allied with the Spanish um, to, to war against the Aztecs. And, and, uh, they were, and they were in the process of being absorbed by the Aztecs. It probably would have happened eventually, but uh, with the arrival of the Spanish, the Tlaxcalans had an ally they, could, they can use against, against, their, against the Aztecs. Um, and they're actually the only listed ally for the Spanish because the Spanish you can't have an army full of with nothing but Spanish units. It has you have to have a uh, contingency of a contingent of of native uh, units, and that that's basically you pull from the Tlaxcala list. Oh, um, but that makes sense. Yeah, and even and even then, it's only, you know x amount of points for Spanish. The rest have to be uh, Tlaxcalan troops. Um, and that that's the the third the third and they had a similar um uh, and they had a similar military society as Aztecs so a, a lot of the units are interchangeable it's really the the special rules and the army limitations that really set them apart uh Purapecha, like i mentioned before they were different in that they they did not follow as far as i could tell from the research i did they did not follow the same societal structure that the Aztecs and most other Mesoamerican armies did in that area. Um, they had one special unit um, called Valiant Ones, which were their nobles and, and veteran troops, and then everything else was just all commoners and novices. But like I said before, they took a lot of missile troops, and the the um, the often quoted uh, description of their bows were that in 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 the findings I had was was that they their their construction of their bows were, were, as, were so sturdy they used them. You can use them as clubs, and they just wouldn't break. That, that's how sturdy the the bows were in that. They were expert marksmen. But I want that bow. But I know, right? But um, yeah. But but the, so the Clox Collins are the are the third, and then the uh, the fourth one are the Huastec, which is a, a city state uh, closer to the modern area of Veracruz. So near the coast uh, of the Gulf of Mexico, and at the time of the Spanish conquest, they had they were slowly being uh, just like the Tlaxcalans, they were their they were their empire or their territory was slowly being absorbed by the Aztecs. They had lost a lot of their southern um, southern territories to the Aztecs leading up to the Spanish arrival. And the thing about them is they are actually of Mayan descent. Uh, that had migrated. Uh, I can't remember the actual time period, but it was the er- it was early Mayan history where they migrated from the Yucatan Peninsula to the area of Veracruz and the coast of uh, the Gulf of Mexico. And um, again, but they still followed the the military society structure that the Aztecs and Tlaxcalans used. So, and again, that their their slight difference was that they uh, they used spears a little more. And, but they, there's other special rules for them that uh, that allow them to uh, differentiate differentiate them from the other armies. Well, this is yeah, just so cool. 
And these, oh, yeah, there's only there's only five. I originally actually had nine armies, but wow. But it, I was like, this is a lot. And it, it, during playtest, it, it was it was hard to balance all of them. Um, I'm sure those be, there are going to be expansions. You know, if this if this catches on, you can you can if still it catches add on. Yeah. Even if it doesn't, I may add at the very least the the other two of the big three, the Mayan and Incas, uh, either on on the uh, many the publisher's website or my, or uh, my own. Um, once I get that going, and so it will be something available to people eventually, whether it's in a book or on a website or or some in some in some form. I I'm pretty sure I'll have something for at the very least. For the Mayans and the Incas, I do have at least four other armies because uh, the, my idea is to go south. So then the next book, so to speak, or the next section would be the Yucatan Peninsula and southern Mexico slash northern Central America, mm-hmm. which includes the Mayans, Zapotec, Mistec, um, and there is one more that I can't remember off the top of my head. But but uh, yeah, so they're already they're 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 on paper i just need to flesh them out and uh, align them with the current with the current uh rule set and they, they should be good to go well this is i i this is just fascinating i and in absolutely <laughs> no joking terms i would i want to know when this comes out because i want to play this game um you know as a, as a historian again being largely educated in uh eurocentral uh tradition don't know nearly as much as I would like to about the Mesoamerican tribes or about Mesoamerican history. Uh, you know, for some a neophyte like myself to this sort of thing, what was your source material? Where can I go to learn more about this? Um, yeah, so it's okay. So there's not a lot in compared to Europe and most other parts of the of the world, only because of of uh, the results of the Spanish conquest and, and burning of a lot of the the books and, and things of that nature. Sure. Um, one of the big ones I did was uh, I found was a book on 16th century uh, armies by I believe it's Ian Heath, and he's done a number of those books. I think that, but that one is actually hard to come. It's not hard to come by. It's just expensive. Uh, last time I checked, I happened to get a copy, um, but the last time I checked, I think on eBay when I looked, it was like going for like two hundred. Um, Amazon I think has Amazon might have one for a bit cheaper. Um, that one's a really good source um, because he has illustrations, and it's funny because a lot of the there's a few of the histor- a few of the manufacturers base their models off of those illustrations. Um, a couple of those illustrations, um, and uh, he he's a big one. The other one was um, uh, there's one called Aztec Warfare. And there's um, I forget the author on that one. Usually, usually I, I, I with a lot of the books I have are actually for the southern areas like Zapotec, Mistec. Osprey has a number of books out. Whether it's uh, they have one for the Siege of Tenochtitlan, they have their Warrior Elite series, which includes the Aztec Warrior. Um, they have one again that that covers Mistec, Zapotec, um, Mistec arm, uh, armies. Uh, the campaign system for for uh, for Mesoamerican armies or Os- Osprey. That's that's actually where I got a lot of the books. And they have if if you go to their bibliography, that there's a lot of sources there. Um, but um, I went to 
I, re- I really just went with, with, to be honest, I went with whatever the bibliography was in the Osprey books from from there. But but the Ian the Ian Heath one is probably the the major one if you're looking for a more complete because he includes all Native Native uh, Americans from the Caribbean, uh, I believe uh, Southern U.S., uh, Mexico, Central America, and I believe South America. As well as the Spanish at that time. Uh, wow! I so, have learned so much today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, and and that well that and that's one of the reasons why I decided to do it was, uh, to be honest, was was a game that came out in uh, a, a number of years ago, and it was uh, it was before the pandemic, and they and they just had the big three. And I was I was not upset, but it, it's one of those things. Um, like I mentioned, because I'm my family's from Mexico, so it's it's like in the DNA. And I can safely, almost safely, can I'm not Aztec, <laughs> like everyone <laughs> mostly assumes uh, most Mexican Americans are, which is funny because my wife technically is because she's from Mexico City. Um, but uh, and it was one of those things where 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 we talk about or society talks about wanting to be represented you know uh you want to see yourself and 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 luckily for me i live in southern california so in wargaming you know there's there's other people of of mexican or 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 of descent especially in you know like i said i live in southern california so so i see i see other other people that look like me playing uh, you know war games like my, my like my uncle um whether historical or, or 40k uh but i know i know that there's other areas of the country and the world where it's not so much and so which we talked about like what which we mentioned was the eurocentric um focus of of uh war games in general and, and why i mentioned of the shoehorning the aztecs into fighting like a european fights and I felt, like I mentioned, that, yeah, it's nice, Aztecs, you know, Incas, Mayas, but that's not who I am. And I wanted to see, it's it's almost like if I, and I always equate the Mesoamerica region, both North and South America, to like Greek city-states. Yeah, we, we talk like ancient Greek city-states. Yeah, we right. talk about Greece. We talk, oh yeah, Greece united, blah, blah, blah. But they weren't really, Greece wasn't a country. We just call it that ancient Greece when it's really, you know, Athens, Sparta, Thebes, all these all these different city states that happen to band together to fight the Persians or fight each other, <laughs> depending on you know, when you when you're talking. And that's how I see that that Mesoamerican world in, in that same light. So when you, you don't you don't make games and just talk about certain aspects. When I see your, when I see other games, I, they talk about almost every aspect of you know the Greek, ancient Greece. They talk about all you know practically all the city states, you mm-hmm. know, not just like two or three, and that and that's one of the reasons I felt bringing to light some of the other, uh, you know, like Tox Colin, like the allies of the Spanish. You don't you know or 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 Porpecha, the second no one talks about the, I mean no one talks about the second largest because they were the second right <laughs> and it history probably would have seen them different if they had landed on the west coast as opposed to the east coast you know so you know and 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 
to be honest, the Puro Pecha didn't fight back because they saw what happened to the Aztec, and they were just like, "No, nah, we're we're good. You can go ahead and take over." <laughs> so, well, um, and like you were saying with Greece, you know, with like because again we, we have this Eurocentric education, Eurocentric like focus for wargaming, all these tiny details. Like most people, if you mentioned Athens, they'd know Athens. If you mentioned yes. Sparta, they absolutely would know Sparta. Oh, yeah. But there were several city-states or empires that you mentioned that many of our listeners have probably never heard of. They probably just assumed the whole area was Aztec and left it at that. Yeah, and 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 you know, and you know, it's again, it's part of being the biggest and the first, you know, being being conquered in in that way. Especially since many many of the the especially because the second largest, you know, City state did just uh, gave up. They, they basically just gave up after the, what they saw. What happened to the Aztecs? There were still pockets, you know, here and there, just like with any, uh, just like with what what happens when when uh, when someone is conquered. There's always those pockets of resistance, but but for the most part, yeah. After seeing what happened to the Aztecs, it kind of like okay, well, we don't want that to happen to us, but um, but yeah. So so I made I made the game. I like I mentioned, I developed. I started with eight armies i originally wasn't going to have the spanish in there but then after going through most of it i was like well you kind of have to have the spanish <laughs> involved <laughs> it's kind of one without you can't have one without the other so you know um and then i did i did cut it down um, and i cut it down along the, those geographic lines because in because in my mind if i wanted to expand i could just go south and then include mayans and some of the some of the um the uh, other uh city states or tribes in the in that area um, if, and there's the option of, like I said, just to put Incas in that, cause I can go further South and just include all of South America in, in one, in one more book if, if need be, or if, like I said, if I put something on a, a website to, uh, just to give people, uh, to start their Incan and Mayan armies. Um, but, and also, like I said, it was, it was something that I felt needed to better represent how they fought. So that people just don't assume they fought, even though people know they fought in, they didn't fight in blocks. Just to see it on the tabletop or see it as a possible, like with the capture mechanic, you know, reaction. Um, I felt, I felt needed to be shown because that, that, especially the capture, the capturing of, of uh, opponents was just something you never saw, like you mentioned, in any other game that involved Aztecs. Because Aztecs are just shoehorned in with every other European army. In, in a in a renaissance era rulebook well even so, though like like you were saying like a huge part of their warfaring culture was around this capturing of opponents either for slavery mm -hmm. or sacrifice so not including that is just sort of omitting part of their reason for being there in the first place right the and the and whatever happening the other thing uh and the reason why i mentioned that there's only two you only use two dice was because like like we've discussed, uh, games workshop games and some and uh, some historical games are a is what I call a bucket of dice game. And for those that don't know what that means, that's literally you roll a bucket of dice, it, or seems like it, uh, when you play the game, especially in 40k when you play orcs, or 40 or, or uh, uh, Imperial Guard or something like Admic. that. Yeah. So you're you're rolling like thirty, forty dice sometimes, and and I was like, I just want to roll two, <laughs> or one, because <laughs> the game the game plays once you get the hang of it, the game plays fairly quick. There's no there's no charts or um or like formulations to to look at. You know, you don't have to, you don't have to compare your strength to their toughness. You don't have to, 
you know, you don't have to worry about range because there's no range is unlimited in the game because of the the distances uh, it, it represents because it's it's playing on a four by four, you know, and you you only have between thirty to fifty models depending how you build your army. So there there's so range is unlimited. You don't have to worry about range. You don't have to worry about like I said the armor save. You just have to wear armor, um, and you're only going to roll like one or two dice. With three at most, but with the with only with that mechanic, you know, and, and the the armor mechanic, and everything happening at the end, so you don't have to decide, oh, which guy am I gonna pull? Uh, I don't know, you know, you just pull guys at the end once all the damage is there, and then sometimes your choice is made for you because your whole unit's wiped out, <laughs> wiped out, but they got to do what they wanted to do, and um, the the game when we got it to about ninety minutes. Uh, especially just playing, not including setup, because it just depends how you want to set up your game. Sure. But it should play about ninety minutes, maybe two hours at most. Um, but with and it's all modifiers; it's it's all pluses and minuses. There's some there there's special rules, but there's no charts or you know in depth charts you need. It's very simple, um, and and the information is very um, surface level. So what 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 we've talked about today. Um, is kind of in depth, but I've in the information I've given, I give a general information, a brief history of the air of the of the area, and then a brief a brief description of the units, just to give you a little taste of what it is. I don't I don't go into the fact that as a novice, there's like three levels of novice depending on how many people you captured. There's like, and then you can branch that off. There's then the priest level that they're the priests that have their own levels. You know of of how many people they capture, and then once you get into the knightly orders with the jaguar or eagle knights, there's another whole like multiple layers. Depend, and it all depends how many guys you captured. Huh. So I didn't take that deep dive because I know that would probably like I didn't want it to be too much. So I just gave people a taste of well, here's what they were like. You know, and it's almost like the Starship Troopers. Would you like to know more? <laughs> <laughs> huh. And and nowadays oh. there's plenty of places you can go to on the internet. You know, to find out more about them, especially YouTube. YouTube's really good um, of finding out uh, what what life was like for the common, like, Aztec person in general. Not necessarily military, but also, you know, just the commoner. What how life, what the daily life was like for someone living in th- at that time. And it was actually pretty comparable to a lot of modern cities in, uh, during the Renaissance. Sure. Well... Adam, I we have gone over massively for this section, and we didn't get to the defense relations at all, and yet I could keep talking with you on this subject for another hour at least. This is absolutely fascinating to me, and I did not want to stop you. I still don't want to stop you, but my editor will literally put me on a spike if I don't. That's all right. But, uh, Adam, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been fantastic. Oh, it's been a lot of fun. Thanks. And uh, yeah, uh, check out what is what is this game called when it comes. So out? the game the game is called Obsidian Empires. You can find Obsidian it Empires. at uh, Military Miniatures Press is the publisher. You can go to Military Miniature Singular Military Miniature Press dot com and you can pre order right now. It comes out December first, and you can either get an electronic version or a uh, physical copy. So. Oh, outstanding. And uh, again, this is Adam of TFG Radio. If you are even trying at being a competitive 40K player and you aren't <laughs> listening to this, you should be. 
if you if you want to know uh, what's going on uh, in the in competitive, we do talk about tournaments and things like that mainly. But and especially also if you plan to go to LVO, uh, we talk a lot about LVO, especially after this weekend. We'll start gearing up for LVO. So. Well, perfect. I, and thanks again, Adam, for coming on. And uh, for the rest of us, I believe that that will conclude it. That's our show. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't had enough of the art of wargaming in your life, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram, where I occasionally post funny and educational memes. If you want to get touch with the show directly, you can email us at artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com with any questions, comments, or concerns that you might have. Also be sure to check out all of our sister shows on the Earworm Network, including General Nerdery, Word Balloons, Fried Squirms, and more. We're working hard on having something for everyone. And again, you can find those at earworm.com. That's E-A-R-V-V-Y-R-M. You can also find that in the show notes. But for now, this has been Yaga Malark, signing off. <laughs> <laughs>